giving us your day-to-day life so we can study and learn from you and uh, emulate the way you live. Thank you for the word that we have studying, we are studying this morning. In your name, amen. Well, I have a little story that kind of reminds me of the Pharisees. Uh, a doctor, a little boy, and a minister were in a small airplane when it developed engine trouble, and the pilot grabbed a parachute and told the passengers it's time to jump. So there were only three parachutes left, though. So the doctor said, I save lives, so I, I must live. So he jumped, with, and he bailed out. Then the lawyer said, I'm a lawyer, and lawyers are the smartest people in the world. I deserve to live. And so he jumped. And then the minister told the little boy, you know what, son, I've lived a long, full life. You take the last parachute. And the boy gave the parachute back to the minister and said, not to worry. The smartest man in the world just jumped out with my backpack. So <laughs> anyways, it just reminded me of the Pharisees. <clears throat> Yeah. As we saw in our study last week, Jesus was becoming very popular with the crowds who sought him out for healing. He had left Capernaum to preach to the outlying areas, but as we pick up today in chapter 2, he's come back to Capernaum. So far in Jesus' ministry, everybody's excited to see him. Everybody wants to hear what he has to say and get near him for healing. But in chapter 2 begins the series of conflicts that will be between Jesus and the religious leaders in Israel. And the very first of these conflicts begins here where Jesus pronounces forgiveness to a paralyzed man. And so in our passage today, the point is being made that Jesus is God. Not only does he heal, but he forgives sins. So this is clearly a claim to his deity. We read in verse 1, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. So it appears that Jesus has now made really Capernaum his home base as opposed to Nazareth. He may have been staying with Peter and his family or else someone else had provided a home for him to use while there. And everyone in the area knows Jesus is back in town. And so they show up at the door of the house that he is staying in. And it was not uncommon within this culture to go to someone's house without an invitation, Middle Eastern uh, hospitality. And not only was Jesus and his disciples there in this house, but in addition, there were religious Jewish leaders who had come to find out what this Jesus was all about. It was literally a full house standing room only. So Jesus took this opportunity to speak truth and explain the word to those gathered. So meanwhile, though, the four men carrying their friend on the pallet Uh, show up. And the crowd's way too big. They can't get in the door. They can't get anywhere. And so they do some creative thinking and they decide to go up the side staircase. Most everyone in Israel had a flat roof that they was another room in the house really. And many had staircases up to it. If they didn't, your neighbor did. So they all kind of used that. So they went up on the roof with carrying their friend uh, on this mat. And they would have had to clear away uh, the clay in order to get the tiles and remove them and make an opening. You could imagine as Jesus teaching, I'm sure everyone's, what going on? <clears throat> and then they lowered the guy. That had to be tricky. You know, you know, boop, you know, there he goes <laughs> a little quicker than anticipated. But anyway, so they're lowering him. And Jesus looks and see, says, in seeing their faith, he says to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
He doesn't rebuke them. I'm in the middle of teaching here. Uh, The first thing Jesus says is that this man's sins are forgiven. Now, as you know, it was the thinking of the day that if you were stricken with an illness, uh, it must be due to your sin. Even Job's friends, you remember chapter after chapter, there must be something you did to have all these bad things happen to you. So certainly there are times where sickness is a result of the discipline of God, but not all suffering is obviously the result of any particular sin. It's living on this earth. It is likely that everyone gathered in that room, seeing him drop down, thought, well, I wonder what he did, you know, to be on that, on that position. <laughs> Must have been something bad. But as Jesus sees this man, he knows right at the start that his greatest need is the removal of his guilt from his heart, weighed down by sin. He needed divine forgiveness. Far greater was his need to be forgiven than to get up and walk. In reality, the greatest miracle of all, when you think about it, is to be forgiven by a completely holy God for every trespass you've ever thought or done or spoke. Jesus saw the faith of these men. What great friends, huh? No obstacle. They are getting their friend to see Jesus. And as they saw, they also saw that they trusted Jesus, that he could heal their friends. So they had a faith in him. They believed Jesus had the power to heal, and they were determined to get their friend to Jesus no matter what, even if it was embarrassing in front of all these people. Now, we see in verses 6 and 7 that the religious leaders are sitting there. They don't don't care anything what's going on. All they heard was, you're forgiven. And they are enraged. They believe it was blasphemy for a man to say he can forgive sins because only God could do that. So these men had come with already closed minds to hear Jesus and witness what he was all about. And the fact that Jesus was reading their minds and called them out on what they were thinking is only the evidence, again, that he is deity. So the dispute then between Jesus and these religious leaders. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up immediately. What a thrill. The religious leaders don't care about Jesus claiming to be God or that he would be God. Jesus knew that they already had a hardened heart of unbelief. He saw it when he read their minds. So Jesus challenges these critics of his by asking them a question. And the answer is clearly obvious to the question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Because no one can know and witness that transaction. But divine healing, that would prove because it's observed by everybody who sees it. And from the perspective of his critics, remember, if a man was sick, it was because of his sin. So if he's healed, then he was forgiven. By healing this man, they should have concluded that Jesus had authority then to forgive the sin. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man here, which was an Old Testament reference to him as to the Messiah. So the power of Jesus uh, to, to forgive is proved, proven. His deity is proven here as he heals this paralytic. At the command of Jesus, the lame man got up, picked up his bed, and walked out of the house. Again, proof that he was who he said that he was. He clearly showed he is God. And more important than being able to walk out of the house, this lame man 
walked out forgiven. This free gift of forgiveness for all his sins, that is the same gift Jesus offers today. You don't have to bear the weight of your guilt and your sin. He came, he died in order to pay that debt that you could never pay. I hope you've seen that that's your greatest need. It's not for a change in your circumstances or money or relationship. This is the greatest need, to be spiritually forgiven forever. Jesus then calls Levi, very fast-moving chapters. And it's nothing new in our culture or in any country in the world that nobody's excited to pay taxes. I don't think the IRS gets many letters of endearment and appreciation. (laughs) For the Jewish people, you remember, it was supposed to be a theocracy, and the taxes that they were uh, commanded by God was to keep the tabernacle and the priests and everything going. But in addition to all that, They were under the domain of Rome, and Rome was heavily taxing the people. And they did so through tax collectors who worked for Rome. It was like a franchise system where they sold this job to collect taxes to the highest bidder in a particular district. So there was a great deal of power that came along with these people who got this franchise because they would extort money and charge taxes in excess to their fellow Jews. And for this reason, they were the most hated people. Uh, in the community. And they were ostracized from religious community life. So we just saw that Jesus has, is God, as God, has the authority to forgive sins. But how much sin is he willing to forgive? He has chosen Levi to illustrate and teach truths about forgiveness. So those who receive forgiveness, we see in verses 13 and 14, Jesus is walking by the seashore. People are coming to him. He's teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus, in the tax booth. And he said, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Levi is this local tax collector sitting in his customs office, collecting money, extorting money. There was a highway that led from uh, Syria to Egypt, and those were people he could nab for more money passing through. Jesus knew the heart of Levi, who seemed to be deeply aware of his sinful state and great spiritual need. And no doubt he had heard many reports about Jesus in town and all that he was doing. So when Jesus spoke to Levi and said, follow me, that's what he did. You know, we love to read the Gospel of Matthew and and admire him and all that we learned from Matthew. And you know, Levi became Matthew. I don't think on the day he was called, anybody was too impressed with him at that point. Jesus shows us that he wants people that no one else wants or cares about. He forgives those people who everyone else has no time for or despises. He is able to see the usefulness in the potential in an individual that he can use for his glory. This would have been scandalous to have a disciple who was a former tax collector, but Jesus didn't care what was said. He came to forgive and save people who knew they needed saving. Luke tells us in his gospel that he left everything behind and he rose up and began to follow Jesus. There was a total forsaking of his old sinful lifestyle. Once he left this job, he could never get it back. And we learn from this that a true conversion to Christ involves a turning your back on a sinful lifestyle, even if it means you have to leave your job or a relationship that you're in. Was he upset? Was he grieving? As he followed Jesus, I have to do this. No, he was thrilled with joy because he had been set free from his guilt. Forgiveness was immediate, and he knew it. And what was the result of being forgiven? 
Levi has such love and gratitude for Jesus. He wants to honor him in some way. And so he prepares for a banquet and he invites all of his friends, which, you know, his friends, who they are. And they all come. You know, when a person is forgiven by Jesus, they want everybody that they love and care about to know this and have the same forgiveness. Clearly, this man's friends are the outcasts from Jewish society due to their sinful lifestyles and failure to keep up with religious Jewish custom. So this caught the attention of the scribes, who then questioned Jesus' disciples as to why he would eat and drink with such people. Forgiven people must be willing to reach out to all types of people who also need forgiveness. Be willing to have them in your home. Be willing to find some way to reach out with the gospel. The good news that you can be forgiven. And this is why Jesus was in the home of Levi. He was calling to those who needed him and knew they needed him. And hearing this, in verse 17, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. At least those who think they're righteous, right? The disciples of Jesus told him about this criticism that he was getting, and Jesus gives a clear requirement to be forgiven. Jesus saw these people he was in the home with as spiritually sick. They needed spiritual healing. They needed forgiveness for their sin. Like a house call, the spiritual doctor comes to these people. The Pharisees condemned these people, wouldn't go near them, but Jesus presented himself to them as the answer to their needs. The religious leaders thought they were well spiritually. They saw no need in their hearts. There was anything wrong in their life as far as they were concerned. So a person must see themselves as a lost sinner in dire straits before a holy God and in need of forgiveness. Jesus, the perfect spiritual doctor, comes to us in our greatest need. He makes a perfect diagnosis. He provides the only cure, and that is forgiveness. I pray that each one of you here has seen your great need and have called on him for forgiveness. That brings us to the bride and groom fasting issue. Pharisees have lots of questions for Jesus. They bring up another question, and they wondered why Jesus' disciples didn't fast. Jesus is confronted with the Jewish legalism practiced by these religious leaders, and why some of John the Baptist's disciples are in on this questioning, I don't know. John's in prison. Maybe they just kind of went back to their traditional observances. The Old Testament taught there was one day a year for fasting. That was the Day of Atonement. But as time and uh, tradition and rituals were tacked on, Fasting became something required in the Pharisees' teaching. So you look pious, you're earning points with God, and you do it twice a week now. Jesus made it clear that he had come to bring gladness and joy, not sadness and burden. The people were weighed down by all the legalistic demands of the Sabbath. But Jesus answered that just as it would be inappropriate for a groom and his attendants to fast at a wedding, you know, at a wedding, it's a celebration. Nobody's fasting with sad faces crying, except maybe the mother of the bride. But anyways, (laughs) it is equally inappropriate for Jesus' disciples to fast, a sign of mourning and sorrow and a heavily burdened heart. And while he was, and while they were in the presence of Jesus. So fasting is to fit the occasion. It had lost its meaning. It had become a regulation imposed on the people by the religious leaders where fasting is to be an expression of the battle or the hurt going on in somebody's heart. In verse 20, we really read that uh, 
Jesus says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, a reference to his impending death. Then fasting will be appropriate. They will, they will be filled with sorrow and grief. Jesus then uses a very short parable to illustrate what he has just said. A patch on unshrunk garment, new wine on old wineskins, they just do not work. Jesus had not come to combine his teaching with the legalism of the Pharisees. New life in Christ, old traditions and rituals of the Pharisees do not mix. He was not patching up an old system. Rather, he was offering something new. True faith so that you can have a clean heart. Legalism is a set of external rules and rituals that do not mix with a cleansed heart by faith in Jesus. That brings us to more Sabbath day issues. One of the greatest misinterpretations of scripture is in regard to the Sabbath day itself. It had become a misapplication of Mosaic law that forbids the observant Jewish person from really doing anything on the Sabbath. As Jesus had just taught through this, his parable, he didn't come to mix rabbinical tradition and rituals with his message of new life. Their view of the Sabbath and Jesus' view of the Sabbath Sabbath do not mix at all. So the problem with Sabbath day regulations, Jesus and his disciples ate some grain as they were walking through a grain field, which was perfectly acceptable according to Deuteronomy 23, 24. If there's a need, you're famished, you're hungry, you can't camp in someone's field and eat you know, continuously, but passing through, you could eat something if you were hungry. And the Pharisees didn't care that they had picked the grain. They didn't care about that. They only cared that they did it on the Sabbath. God's intent in giving the Sabbath was so that his people would cease from work and simply have a day of a change of pace and rest from all their six days of work. Now, hundreds of years of traditions and rabbis' opinions had made it harder to rest on the Sabbath than to do work. If one was to try to keep all of these men, I mean, even remember them, what a burden to carry anything heavier than the fig, a fig that was work. No baths, because if you spilt water, you'd have to wipe it. That's work. If you go to Israel today on the Sabbath, you get in the elevator. Every button stops on every floor because you can't push a button because that would be work. So the Sabbath had become, and still is for many, oppressive, a heavy burden of man-made bondage. And again, we see the danger of human traditions that are given more authority than the word of God. You know, that's all mixed together and people don't even know the difference between the truth of God's word and what's become a tradition. This thinking is not restricted to the religious Jewish leaders of uh, Jesus' day. There are many today as well who believe in Jesus, but they've added all kinds of legalistic obligations and rules that the Bible say nothing about. The problem is man-made rules. So the purpose of the Sabbath is seen in verses 25 and 6. Jesus answers their question using scripture. He refers them back to the story, and we've studied for Samuel, when David and his men are running for their lives from Saul who wants to kill them. And they have reached a place of complete famished, starving, and they end up by the tabernacle. David asks the priests for some food, and the only food available was the consecrated bread of presents that only the priests were supposed to eat. Ceremonial regulations were not as important as the need of an individual. If God allowed this ceremonial law to be broken for the welfare of David and his men, then it certainly was allowed for Jesus to break uh, man-made foolish traditions. Human need overruled ceremonial regulations. The Sabbath was for the benefit of man. It was not meant to be an oppressive thing for them. 
God instituted the Sabbath so that people would be refreshed, more healthy, able to focus on their work better the other days of the week. It had become anything but that under the leadership of the Pharisees who made it a tyrant, really, in their lives. God cares more for the needs of people than he does about religious traditions being kept. Sometimes rules have to be adjusted for the good of those they were created to help. Clearly, this is not the case with God's moral law. That's absolute and never changes. But those are timeless uh, truths that are to always be obeyed. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus makes it clear he has authority to bring the Sabbath day back to what its divine intention was. And that was to benefit people. And the principle of the Sabbath is still the same. As the Ten Commandments makes clear, they're all the same. We obey. We do need a day set aside to rest. The practice of the Sabbath day behavior. So the next section, moving along, uh, that Jesus not only said that we are, uh, are to do what is best for people on the Sabbath, but now he's actually going to do something good for somebody on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to Israel as a nation. It was not given and commanded to the church. The Sabbath was uh, a, a part of the Mosaic law that Christ fulfilled. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. Rather, Sunday is a day we set aside to worship, to hear the word of God, to sing together, to gather, because it's the first day of the week, the day Jesus rose from the dead. But the New Testament does not require us to put one day above another day. Uh, We support a wonderful missionary, a believer who's grown up his whole life, Jewish believer, and Jerusalem has a wonderful ministry there. The church is Saturday. I mean, Sunday is Monday, so that's when church is in Israel for the believers. The principle of the Sabbath was to be freshed a day off of work. So in chapter 3, we have a living illustration of the true meaning of the Sabbath as opposed to what had become tradition. As Jesus enters the synagogue to teach, there was a man with a withered hand in attendance. Now, we don't know if he was planted there by the Pharisees. It sure seems like he was, because we read in verse 2, and they were watching to see what Jesus was going to do on the Sabbath, and so that they could accuse him and have a reason to try to arrest, destroy him. So they were there to press charges against Jesus. They didn't care about the truth that was going to be proclaimed or the kindness done. It is only in the life and death situation, remember, on a Sabbath that you could offer a smidge of, of help. And this man had not, was not in a life and death situation. He could have said, to, Jesus could have said, come back tomorrow and we'll take care of it. However, Jesus wanted them to see their guilt and to understand the truth. Rules can blind people to the actual human needs of people. These religious leaders cared more about their animals. They made all kinds of adjustments to take care of their sheep should they be injured or fall. Uh, They had a greater interest in the helping animals in distress but not people. Wow, that sounds familiar, right? (laughs) Nothing new under the sun. So Jesus asked them point blank, if it was lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to, to save a life or to kill? And the clear answer is yes, you do good and you save a life. Jesus brought up the killing on the Sabbath because that is exactly what they were doing while they were sitting in the synagogue service. They were looking at Jesus with such hatred, they were murdering him in their heart. Jesus was angry with them. He had a holy anger for the evil and the hardness of their hearts. Religious traditions and rules often serve as a cover-up for a wicked, sinful heart and what's really going on under the surface that no one sees. 
As soon as Jesus healed this man, the Pharisees went out, immediately began conspiring how they will destroy him. That was what was in the hearts of these religious leaders. Murder, even as they tried to keep all of their rituals and traditions and look pious. Now we see the pressure of Jesus as his busy ministry continues. The Jewish leaders are now watching. Can you imagine everywhere he went, everything he did, they're there. They're watching. They're sending spies. They're always there. It added so much pressure. Jesus, being the great servant of God, has been sent by the Father to minister, and he would do so no matter how difficult it would get. The Pharisees now joined with the Herodians. They normally hated each other, but, you know, they'll join together for a common hatred in trying to kill Jesus. It was not yet the appointed time, though, for Jesus to die. Therefore, he slipped away. Doing the will of the Father was his main priority. And we have to talk, we talked about this last week. It has to be our priority, too. Jesus withdrew to the sea, but there was no rest to be had there because we read a great multitude from Judea, Jerusalem, from all over came to find, to find Jesus and get near him. And as these thousands of people just pressed in on Jesus, he instructed his disciples to have a boat ready for him to get into. There were the sick and the disabled being brought to Jesus and the demon-possessed. He ordered the demons not to keep shouting out his identity as they threw their victims violently on the ground when he cast the demons away. This was not who he wanted declaring his identity. Not only did Jesus submit to the Father's will, he spoke to the Father in prayer. We read that he went up on the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. Luke, in his account, tells us that Jesus had spent the whole night in prayer before making this major decision. We saw the same priority last week in chapter 1. Even though Jesus is God, he looked to the Father in his humanity for direction, clarity, decision-making, spending time with the Father. As I said last week, we must see the importance of doing the same thing. I don't know if anything's changed from last week to this week in your life. I hope so. We need direction for every decision. We just, what is it that you want me to do today? We need clarity of how he wants us to serve him moment by moment. Well, Jesus sought the Father, and he was about to make a huge step in sharing his ministry with the men he chose. He would spend more time with these men than anyone. They were not his business associates. They weren't his slaves. They were his friends. Every believer needs to be connected to other believers to work on building friendships through being open and honest. You know, being isolated is destruction. In the next verses, Jesus is accused of having power to do his ministry by Satan himself. Uh, They said he was possessed by Satan. Jesus clearly points out the stupidity of their false accusation. Uh, You can't be divided against yourself. I'm not working for him. So in verse 28, Jesus says, All sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I want to touch on these verses as we close because they've been so misinterpreted and misunderstood for so many years. What is the sin that will not be forgiven? I mean, you hear Christians, I don't know if I've committed the unpardonable sin. Well, if you're a Christian, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. It's not murder. It's not suicide. It's not sexual immorality. It's not even blaspheming Jesus and being defiant. I mean, Paul did that. 
This unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit is the ongoing continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit concerning the person of Jesus and the power of who he is. It is a conscious, deliberate rejection of Jesus when there has been clear evidence and clear arguments given that the Holy Spirit has made clear. Their failure to recognize Jesus as a Messiah uh, could be forgiven and be repented of as many in time came to believe in Jesus. But to believe that Christ's power was demonic and to resist and to reject the Holy Spirit with a hardened attitude of rejection of Christ is to seal your eternal destiny in hell. There are people in every generation who have been part of a church. They know the scriptures. They've been taught about Jesus all their lives. They've seen people's lives transform themselves in the lives of others. And yet, there is an ongoing, continual rejection of that witness of the Holy Spirit and the divine, uh, the divinity of Jesus and the salvation he offers. It is the perversion in a person's heart that chooses to call light darkness and darkness light. There is a continuing rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit through a person's conscience or hearing the word or in the case of the Pharisees, seeing incredible miracles. Men and women who reject the Spirit's testimony regarding their own spiritual condition and the person and work of Jesus so consistently that their hearts become unable to believe. It is a fixed decision. It is a total rejection of the only basis of God's salvation with a lot of light in their life and a total rejection of it. There is knowledge of the truth and a final rejection. This is a very solemn warning. There is a point of no return. Well, we've seen today the incredible faith of four friends. Wouldn't you love to have friends like this? And sometimes, you know what? We need friends who will believe even for us when we're, we're shaky in our faith, you know? These guys, these friends came. We're getting you to Jesus. It's going to heal you. Wonderful to have friends like that. They would stop at nothing to get their friend help. We've seen that in doing miracles, Jesus proved he was God. Therefore, he is able to forgive sin, the greatest need that everyone has. We've seen that Jesus forgives all types of sinners. That's why he came. There's no limit to the type of sinner and what they've done. There's no wickedness too wicked. Forgiveness is for those who know they are in need of forgiveness. And we have seen that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and that the Sabbath is not about man-made rules and regulations. It's about a, having a day, a rest, and not being caught in all the rituals that were being demanded of by the Pharisees. Jesus experienced great pressure in ministry, but he always obeyed the Father. He always sought direction from the Father. Jesus chose then to invest his life for three years in these men who were his friends. And Jesus closed the chapter by saying that, you know what? Real family, true family, goes beyond any blood. Real family are fellow believers who you do the will of God together. So much rich truth for us to consider and apply to our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the life of Jesus. Thank you that we have Mark's account as fast moving as it is. I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you offer forgiveness. You made it possible that we don't have to walk through this life weighed down by our own wretched sin, that you died to pay for every sin, past, present, and future. 
Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know this forgiveness, that you will open their eyes to understand and to call upon you for for forgiveness and to be set free from the burden of guilt and free like the joy Levi had to go on in life with a whole different purpose and a whole different reason for living. In Jesus' name, amen.